Lord, we um, ask that you would be here with the presence of your Holy Spirit and that you would teach us through your truth and through your word. Um, this was such a significant conversation that was had between your son, who is the Laga, the message for us, who is the embodiment of your truth and your character, and with um, this woman that, that so much represents who we are and who our culture is today. And so, Father, I uh, just pray that you would be active in your word, and that you'd be active in, in my words. And um, Lord, I pray that you would apply this home to our hearts in ways maybe that we never even would have imagined. So and I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Samaritans don't come up very often in the Bible. Uh, as far as the New Testament goes, kind of moving backwards, uh, we are told of in the book of Acts of how Philip, one of the apostles, was one who was taken by the Lord to the Samaritans and shared the gospel there with them. And they responded. And this was in obedience and fulfillment of Jesus' uh, promise and, and um, foretelling that his disciples would be his witnesses. And he said that they would be proclaiming the gospel in Judea, where the Jews reside, and into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's something interesting in John 3 and 4 um, because uh, that kind of explains why it is that here in John 4, amidst all of other Jesus' other conversations in the Gospel of John, aside from after he's arrested, in all of his conversations, he's speaking with Jews. But here in John 4, we see him speaking, uh, having a long discourse with a Samaritan, this woman by the well. And then um, all evidence points to the person that he speaks to at the end of John 4 as being a Gentile, the official in Galilee. And, and there's some that explain that these, this um, example of these long conversations with Nicodemus and with this Samaritan woman and then dealing with this Gentile at the end of chapter 4 was John's explanation to his readers. Jesus' example of moving from Judea to Samaria and to the Gentiles. Because John's readers would have seen the church and the gospel spread in this way in obedience and in fulfillment, as I said, of what Jesus foretold, that they would be his witnesses in Judea and into Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. So there's a reason here why John concentrates so much on this conversation with this Samaritan woman. So the Samaritans don't pop up that often, as I said. There's Philip in Acts and and um, probably the most well-known Samaritan is the character from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we come to this Samaritan woman that Jesus talks to by Jacob's well. Um, she's what one writer called the Bad Samaritan. 
Um, and so we move into, whereas last week we looked at this passage in terms of the makings of true worship, today we look at these same verses as the makings of a testimony. So we're kind of looking at it from the Samaritan woman's perspective. And if you look at your notes there, we are kind of walking through it in the way that um, someone might come to Christ and be a part of, of God's kingdom work in the sense of starting with a hard, idolatrous heart and moving to the question of religion versus relationship and then a changed heart by the gospel and by Christ and then stepping into being a part of the harvest which we see, and that's what we see happen in the life of this Samaritan woman here in chapter 4. You might wonder why we're spending three weeks on these 42 verses in the Gospel of John. I mean, we have 21 chapters to go through, right? And my short answer is I'm not entirely sure. Other than I believe God wants us to sit here for a while. Uh, my longer answer goes with my assumptions, and that's with the strange fact uh, that, like I said, in all these 12 chapters, Jesus is talking to Jews, and then we have this long conversation with this non-Jew. With that said, I think that it may be that we identify with the Samaritans and the Samaritan woman because of their not being Jews. Also, as I mentioned last week, I think we identify with Jesus as he speaks with her, as believers, as followers of Christ. And I shared last week that I, I, I really think that prior to this new millennium that we're living in, the people that we approached with the truth of the gospel were, were much more like Nicodemus. They had a foundation of the truths of the gospel. They had an understanding of <clears throat> maybe who Jesus is and that he died on the cross and that we claim that he rose from the dead. <clears throat> and people prior to this new millennium that we lived in, in, in our culture, mainly needed to hear, but you must be born again. Now it seems that we're in the day of the woman at the well. And our points of truth just don't seem like they have cubby holes to land in within people's minds. Tell someone that God loves them or that they stand condemned before God's righteousness. And most often today, we, they might respond with, well, which God are you talking about? Or they might say, well, not my God. For a specific example, it's like my for my sister who's a foster parent, uh, a foster daughter that she cared for. Um, she actually found over course of conversation that this girl had never even heard of the person of God, and that and that's the day that we're living in, in our culture, and it seems to be me more like the woman at the well than Nicodemus. And I think partly that's why we're sitting on these verses for a while. We need to better understand the, per the state of a person who is spiritually blind and without a biblical foundation. We need to be encouraged as we watch Jesus 
breaks through an idolatrous hard heart and what that looks like. And so we read in verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John includes one of his parenthetical statements, For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So we spoke last week about the fact that Jesus asking this woman for a drink broke so many social norms, one after another. And more than anything, it was the stigma that Jews placed on the Samaritans that caused this woman to rebuff him, I believe. She's basically saying, why are you talking to me? Don't you believe that I have the plague or something? You know, Don't you believe that you're going to catch something from me? Become unclean? What's interesting to point out here is that the use of the term give or gift over and over again in these verses, Jesus uses this term five times in verses 7 through 15. And I believe that what we see is that Jesus is setting the stage for the gospel. It wouldn't have been the same if he had said, can I buy some water from you? It wouldn't have set the stage for the gospel if he said, hey, I made that water, so hand it over, because it belongs to me in the first place. Or, hey lady, hand over the water or I'll smite you, or maybe I'll turn it to blood like I did for the Egyptians. Obviously, these statements wouldn't fit Jesus' character here, but I believe that Jesus had a goal in mind, and that was to segue into the free gift of salvation, of the gospel. He starts by asking for a gift of water from this woman. And he keeps bringing her back to this free gift that I believe she finally takes from him at some point. And so we move into this gift of thirst-quenching life that he wants to speak about. So he answers her rebuff with this. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. Then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now we talked last week about how much ignorance of God's word there is wrapped up in this woman's statements. <clears throat> As we talked about how the Samaritans' refusal to accept the scriptures led them to rewrite their history. And as a part of that, they actually believed that the patriarchs of the Jews, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that these patriarchs were actually their forefathers instead. And without batting an eye to debate, Jesus is determined to offer this woman the gift that she so desperately needs. And so it says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So as we discussed last week, we can understand that Jesus is offering this woman a relationship with God. He'll speak again in John 7 about a spring of water 
that from, can well up from a person's heart. And John tells us that he's speaking of receiving the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit at that point. And we'll see next here is that this woman shows an ease and an interest in what Jesus is offering. So Jesus pulls out a commitment card and says, okay, fill this out, right? No, he knows that her knowledge of God and her knowledge of the gospel is very small. And he also knows that there's some idol busting that needs to take place in her life. This brings us to the idol in her life, the unquenching drink that she's been drinking from. It says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So as I said, Jesus doesn't pounce on this. He goes after her idol first. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. As I said, the Samaritan woman makes a request of the water that Jesus is offering. She either understands that he's it, as speaking of physical water, or she's kind of like saying, okay, come on, let's see this magical water you've got. But what's going on between the Trinity here is this. The Father must have released to Jesus the opportunity to use part of his attributes of being all-knowing, and Jesus makes a surgical strike on the idol of this woman's heart. It appears that the idol she worships is men in order to have what she needs. She thinks that if she just makes herself available enough to men, she'll have the security or the intimacy or the acceptance that she needs or maybe just laundry to do. But she seems to intend to shut down the conversation with the technical truth that she doesn't have a husband. But the technical truth that she doesn't have a husband is that she doesn't have a legitimate husband, right? So we need to understand that this likely explains why this woman also would be at the well when she is. As we talked about last week, this points to the fact that other women don't want to be around her. That's why she's there alone. And she doesn't want to be around the other women. That's why she's there at noon, when nobody in their right mind is going to the well in the heat of the day. But this likely, this, this immoral lifestyle that she lives is likely the reason why she is shunned by the other women of her community. According to rabbinical law, which the Samaritans piously followed, a woman was only permitted to marry three times. So her remarriages alone, if and we'll get to the question of if they were remarriages, but her remarriages alone would have made her an outcast. But combined with this fact is the fact that this sixth man in her life, she's not married to at all. 
In modern layman terms, if you'll forgive me for um, being, you know, drawing from an analogy here from modern days, um, her latest man is getting the milk for free without having to buy the cow. But but let me share with you um, another view of this, of this description that Jesus gives of her life. At least two writers that I read, um, very solid writers, believe that it's likely that Jesus is making a word play here with the term husband. The term can also mean man in the right context. In other words, um, it could be that Jesus was using the term loosely and was saying, go get your man. And he's saying, you've had five men. And the fifth one, uh, or this sixth one, is not your husband. And so it's very possible that this wasn't five marriages and the, one, the sixth one she's not married to. It's very possible that these were five um, immoral um, lifestyles with men and this sixth one is not her husband but someone else's. Even, But whatever the case, Jesus has uncovered her idol here. And so let's just kind of review. An idol is what a person uses when their heart is set on serving themselves. An idol is a person or a thing that they go to. And they give to that thing what God has given to them in order to get from that thing or from that person what they believe that they need. Um, I've used, again, again the object lesson of the vending machine. Just like a person goes to a vending machine, it takes from their pocket um, the money that they have, and they put it in there, and they select what they want, and they get from it. We, we are treating someone as an idol when we're treating them, or when we're treating something as like a vending machine, where we're taking what God has given to us to worship and glorify him with, whether it be our time or our energy or our words or our attention, and we're giving it to something or some or someone in order to get from that person or from that, that thing the fulfillment of our needs that we have. So this is such a plain example for us. This woman, she had served herself by offering her body to a man, thinking that she could get from him security, intimacy, and appreciation. For this woman, as so often happens for men and women alike, she has spent her adult life giving herself away. And it's tragic. But I want you to understand the greatest side of this tragedy. And that's that what she has given away has been meant to honor God with. That's the greatest tragedy here. She was giving away what didn't belong to her, even. Like God tells the prophet Jeremiah, he tells him how he feels about his children making idols to meet their needs. As Jeremiah 2.13 says, says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, so they've turned their back on me. That's their first evil. And then they've dug for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
that perfectly describes what this woman had done. She had turned away from her creator and she turned to men that couldn't even give her what she needed, but she turned to them again and again and again. And so this is how it is that anything can be used to serve ourselves or to serve God. The same thing could either be an idol or it can be an opportunity of worship. For instance, if I'm offering my time, my energy, or attention to my boss or to my customer or to my car or to my lawn in order to get something from that thing that I need, it can be an idle relationship. But I can offer the same thing to the same person or to the same thing and do so out of a heart's desire to serve the Lord with it and it can be an act of worship to him as I trust him to meet my needs. Jesus loved this woman at the well so much. He loved her too much to let her go on living in her idolatrous relationship without saying something. And he didn't need to be omniscient to know that she was struggling with the restless thirst in her heart. Augustine writes in his confessions about the Lord, he says, You have made us for yourself, and the heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. Idols do not satisfy. But sadly, it's our default. It's our default as people. We will go back to them again and again until God breaks through our idolatrous hard heart. Let me just say, when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to sharing with people as they fumble with one idol after another, one of the best, one of the best questions, one of the best questions that we can ask a person in that situation or to ask ourselves comes from Dr. Phil. And it's this. How's that working out for you? But to also share, you know what? This is what God has said about that area of life. This is what God's standard is. And we'll come back to talking about, you know, sharing our faith with the Samaritans around us of our day. But what comes next is in the making of a testimony is usually religion versus relationship. That's what comes up in the Samaritan woman's conversation with Jesus. When her life came under the microscope, the woman seems to feel like she's taking a test. But it only makes sense that she tries to talk religion. That's how often, how so often that we are supposed to make up for our failures, right? Just get religious. But for this woman, it may have just been a hope that she could change the subject. It says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, we should notice that, that there's a strong element of respect here. There really is, coming from this woman suspecting Jesus to be a prophet, especially being that he's a Jew. 
But here she's speaking to the one that can provide her with all of the security and all of the intimacy that she needs. And she doesn't recognize him for who he is. Like Nicodemus, she's blinded to Jesus' significance. But again, um, Augustine in his confessions kind of shines some light on this for us when he says, it is no advantage to be near the light if the eyes are closed. Religious talk can be very useful for keeping tension, attention away from the states of our hearts. And religious activity can make us feel, it, it can make us feel like we're making up for wrongs that we've done. How true is it that so many people show up on Sunday to try to make up for what they did on Friday and Saturday? That's, that's just a part of our culture. But it's a part of who we are as fallen beings, too. We go to religion rather than relationship. It's like the waitress that I sometimes get at a local restaurant for breakfast, and, and sometimes when I'm waiting you know, to meet with somebody, or I'll go a little bit early and I'll take my Bible and, and do some reading, it's like as soon as I open my Bible up, the, I, it, it's like clockwork. The waitress starts singing Sunday school songs. I don't know if she thinks she's going to get a bigger tip or what, but it's kind, of, you know, it's kind of like okay, time to get religious. When confronted with the truth or with the presence of God, our first reaction is to get religious. The area of religious activity that this woman at the well brings up is location of worship. But Jesus lets her know that worship is not about location, as we talked about last week. That Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You know, another thing about that can be so dangerous about religion is even if a person, you know, thinks that I've got the right location to worship is that it gives a false sense of security. And I've shared this before about how religion is like sunglasses that you might buy at a dollar store or something. And you put them on and your eyes feel better. But there's a problem because there's no UV protection. And so while you think that you're solving the problem and while the comfort allows your eyes to open up even more, you're actually damaging your eyes more than if you didn't have them on at all. And religion is dangerous in that way that it gives a false sense of security. It gives people a false sense that everything's all right between them and the righteous God who created them and deserves their worship. And if they don't reach out for Christ and his work in his death and in his resurrection to make up for the huge insurmountable gap of righteousness between them and God, then they have a false sense of security of thinking that they are out from underneath the wrath of God. Like useless sunglasses. What Jesus starts to hammer home is the fact that worship is about having a relationship with God. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And last week, we talked about the significance of this statement. 
But Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The key statement here is in verse 24, as we talked about last week. With this verse, I like to just kind of review the analogy that we that we took through the um, our walk through these verses last week, and then the the analogy is um, something that I read from John Piper when I read uh, twenty years ago his book Desiring God, and it's and it's that of a wood stove, and it helps us to understand worship in the sense that. Um, kind of taking the parts from this verse and putting them into this analogy, is that our spirit, with having been made in the image of God and God being spirit, us having a spirit is what gives us the opportunity to worship him. A chimpanzee can't worship God. Our spirit is what gives us the opportunity to worship him, and we have the opportunity to worship him wherever we are because we take our spirit with us wherever we go. And that's like the stove itself. And God's truth, as we worship in spirit and in truth, we need his truth like the fuel of that stove in order to worship him. Because worship as, is defined as our right response to what God has revealed about himself. So even if this woman had the right location, quote-unquote, Jesus tall shares with her, you're worshiping what you don't even know. She needed God's truth in order to be able to worship him. But just wood inside a wood stuff does no good if you don't have a flame to start it with. And that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within our lives. With those three things involved, we have the opportunity to worship, which in this analogy is the light and the heat and the radiance that comes from the wood stove. And that's what worship is. And we talked all last week about how that could be praise, that could be obedience, that could be trust, that could be witness. But it's about having a relationship. And it does not happen outside of this relationship with the God who is spirit and indwells us. We have the opportunity to have him indwell us with his Holy Spirit, having received Christ as our Savior. So I think that this woman at the well is thinking the same way as she did about the living water that Jesus offered. Remember, she said, give me this water so I'll no longer have to come back to this well and draw from it in order to drink. I think that she's thinking, I wish I had this relationship with God so that I will not be thirsty and have to come back to a temple. To worship. It may seem like I'm assuming this, but I see a change of heart take place in this Samaritan woman. I see a change because of her statement and her actions that come in the next verses. Unfortunately, we see some pretty dense examples of Jesus' disciples, though. But we move into this change of heart over the Samaritan woman. I'll explain how I mean I see, I, I see this change. But it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, John gives us that commentary. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I believe this, the woman's change of heart included her hoping for the Messiah. Let me explain this. We miss something about this statement without understanding the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. As we talked about last week, the Samaritans refuse to accept um, any Old Testament books beyond the book of Deuteronomy. They were not waiting for the Jewish Messiah. And their rewriting of history made this the Messiah to be more of kind of like an international character. Their ignorance of anything beyond Deuteronomy meant that they were waiting for the prophet of God that, he, that God told Moses of in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18 where it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this is the Redeemer that the Samaritans were waiting for, this prophet in the likeness of Moses. So I find this recognition that the Messiah is coming to be an amazing sign of the work of God in this woman's heart. It would, it would be much like a Muslim saying that the Jewish Christians have it right and that Jesus is the way. We see her no, not only hoping for the Messiah, we see her banking on the Messiah. It says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then we pick up in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Jesus claims to be the Messiah who is coming. And this is a ginormous statement. We won't see him make an open statement like this again until he's before the Sanhedrin on the night of his arrest. Considering the Samaritan's woman acceptance of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus' response must have been huge to her. I mean, standing right before, I mean, she either arrives at this in her conversation with him through the work of the Holy Spirit, or deep down she's kind of like, okay. I know that you Jews are waiting for the right person. And then he says, I'm right here. I just want to share just from another perspective how significant this would have been for her. Robert Lewis has a series that I appreciate called The Quest for Authentic Manhood. 
And he teaches about how men who are living as they're naturally born, as men are naturally born in our sinfulness, we are takers. We will suck the life out of others while living pass as passively as possible. We will step on others in order to promote ourselves. I'm talking about men. We will fight for what we want. And we'll be opportunistic, looking for someone to take advantage of, to step on, to get where we want to go. That is men who are born into our natural sinfulness. The definition of a naturally born sinful man is what this Samaritan woman had likely been taken advantage of by, who, by this type of person time and time again. But 1 Corinthians 15.45 tells us that Jesus was not a normal man. It tells us that he is a life-giving spirit. The way it describes this is it says, the first Adam was a living spirit, meaning drawing off of others in order to live. The second Adam, who Jesus is described as, was a life-giving spirit. Robert Lewis argues that Jesus is our perfect example of manhood and masculinity as it was meant to be lived. And that means that this woman came face-to-face -face with a loving, protecting, cherishing, providing, perfect example of masculinity. And I think she melted and said yes to her Jewish Messiah. And we see that she banked on Jesus as the Messiah. As she went and told her neighbors about him. But do you notice what she did first? She walked away from the very thing that occupied her mind prior to meeting Jesus. She left her water pot. Water was the need that she was fixated on, on at the point that she couldn't understand his teaching. Water is what drew her out of her home in the heat of the day. Now even without bringing water back home, she sees her trek to the well as anything but a wasted trip. I think, I'd like to think that she found her treasure there at the well. And water didn't seem all that important anymore. I'd also like to think that she bumped into her boyfriend on the way back from the well. And he's saying, hey, where's my drink? I'd like to think that she says to him, um, yeah, we're through. I found my treasure. And I don't need anything else. Lastly, no here, notice what she encourages the town people to do. Come and see this man. Just as Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see Jesus. It's a reminder to us that as we seek to share Jesus with others or to help people grow in their faith, it's about getting them to come and see Jesus. 
We see her step into her involvement in the harvest. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And that's what she said. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman after these two days, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I want you to notice that, first of all, many, many believed in Christ because of this woman's testimony to Jesus' abilities. Remember, they had a lot of screwy theology, and they had traditions based on a whacked history. But when they saw this woman be impacted in the way that she was, they believed. And as we seek to reach our culture full of Samaritans, I want to share with you what they need to hear. Certainly, they need to be, we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have, according to 1 Peter 3.15. But first, they need to see hope in us. I, I was talking uh, recently, and, and I've been kind of, I confess to you, you know, I hear like, you know, the economy's here and the government's doing this and all this. And, and there was a few days where I was like, what happens if it all falls apart? You know, what happens if people can't give? You know? But I was reminded, like back in Acts 2, man, if it all falls apart, this is exactly where I want to be. With a body of people that love each other and care for each other. People around us need to see that. They need to see hope. Today's Samaritans need to see marriages that are functioning according to God's principles for marriage. And I know that a number of you are, on, are not on your first marriage. Okay? Let me just say this. Don't let the enemy beat you up. Okay? Your family members, your extended family, they need to see what a change in you or, or, or a spouse who's, who's walking with the Lord, what difference that makes in your life. They have an opportunity to see a contrast. Today, Samaritans need to see us give grace with our children. Not laziness with expectations, grace. They need to see us have hopeful expectations for our children amidst all this idea of, oh, you know, the teenage years are just going to do what they're going to do. Today, Samaritans need to see us receiving and offering forgiveness. And guess what? That assumes we aren't perfect, right? And so we can be honest about that. We can say, you know what? I'm a forgiven person. My, my whole relationship with God and with this church, it starts with the fact that I needed forgiveness and I found it in Christ. I love the statements of the townspeople after learning from Jesus for two days. It says, um, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves 
and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I love the statements here. They're no longer going off the woman's words. They're hearing from Jesus themselves, and they're trusting him fully. This has to be our goal in sharing our faith and in discipling others. We should desire for that other person to grab a hold of Christ, to walk in relationship with Christ. We, we should pray that they too would have birthed in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, I've written in my Bible a little prayer next to these verses, and I, and I was reminded of it as I was studying these again. It, it reads exactly this. It reads, Lord, make these words true of my children. Make them true of harvest. It's no longer because of the words that someone else said. But I've talked with Jesus myself. I spent time with Jesus myself. And now it's because of what he's doing in my life that I believe. Let's close in prayer. Father, just as we... Um, as we ruminate and, and um, have your words sitting on our heart, as we know we're surrounded, we are surrounded with people that don't know you. We, we feel so discouraged so often as we talk to people and it's like we're talking a different language when it comes to talking about you. Or maybe even someone here this morning is in that position, Lord. Lord, we have to have a growing relationship with you to be a light. Religion doesn't cut it. We have to have a growing relationship with you to have that spring of water within us that we can just live off of, Father. Lord, I pray that you would use our time of worship, that we could express our praise to you, but that you would also sink these truths into our hearts as you know that we need them to be sung. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.